Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. We are lucky enough to have an incredibly influential woman with us today. We are chatting with Michelle Jubalier, the Chief Operating Officer at Capital Music Group. Many may know it as Capital Records, and of course, we all know the round, iconic building that sits in the heart of Hollywood, where Michelle's office is. Michelle has had the honor of working with and overseeing recording projects with artists such as Katy Perry, Halsey, and legends like Paul McCartney, and so many more. But before we talk to Michelle, we have another very special guest with us who I'd like to introduce, and that is our co-host, Tyson. Tyson is a 20-year-old singer-songwriter from Los Angeles who's been performing, writing, and recording for the past few years, and she's recently gotten management and will be releasing her first major single via AWOL this spring. Her style is raw, relatable, and unapologetic, and she has an incredible sense of self and style. Hi, Tyson. Hi, Valerie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I love pairing passionate and talented people just starting out in their careers with women who have worked their way to the top. Tell me what you hope to learn today from Michelle. I'm just super excited to be here and hear how she did it, you know, how someone that's successful and established did it. Right. Because it's really amazing. Yeah, especially, you know, there's not a lot of women at the top of the music industry. No. On the executive side, so. She's a legend. She is. She <laughs> definitely is. So we'll be excited to hear from her. So I know that you have uh, recently released a few songs and music videos on YouTube. Which one's your favorite? Which one do you want people to go check out? My favorite song that I have out right now is Merry Go. But my favorite music video I have right now is Back For More. And how can people find your music? You can find it on YouTube uh, under Tyson. And you can find my social media is all under I Am Not Mike Tyson. Beautiful. Well, I hope everybody will check it out. Thank you so much. All right. Well, Michelle will be here in a few minutes, and I'm excited to get started. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to She Dynasty. Thank you for having me. You know, you being here is actually a really big deal for me because I have a story from my childhood, which um, was very meaningful that has to do with the building that you work in. I had a, a friend and a neighbor, and we used to like to write songs. And at the age of seven, we convinced our parents to drive us down to the Capitol Records building. And um, our parents stayed in the car, and we walked in, and we asked the receptionist if we could perform our song live. And, you know, we were in hopes of getting a record deal. And the receptionist thought we were so cute that she had to go get somebody, and they let us perform. We actually got to perform our song live, and we got a standing ovation, and I walked out thinking that I had, had really nailed it. You ladies must have been very adorable. Well, I bet the security doesn't work that way anymore. <laughs> no, 
It's pretty tight these days. So um, you work in that amazing building that everyone knows. It's world famous. Tell us what it feels like to go into that building every day. I feel incredibly lucky knowing where I came from and the fact that I get to work in that building every single day. And no matter what kind of mood I am in, when I am approaching the building, as soon as I'm about to open the door, my mood changes because I know that in a I love the music industry and I get to work in the iconic Capitol Tower. And just for those who have never been inside or will never be able to be in there, what is are the are the walls actually round? Yes, it is legitimately a round building. And often people come in the building when they're on our floor, any floor, and ask which way to get to the elevator. And I always say laughingly, you're going to hit it either way. And it's beautiful. And we have incredible studios in the ground floor of the building. So you are the chief operating officer at a major record label. Do you realize what a big deal that is for so many people who are listening? I still think it's a big deal. Sometimes I'm in shock. Right. Must be a really cool thing to say out loud. Sometimes. I'm assuming that most of the people that are in that C-suite club are men in your business. Is that correct? That is correct. Can you count how many women there are in the major record labels? Um, There are a handful of women running major record labels, but I'm hopeful in the next 10 years that will change. So you think things are starting to shift? I do. I do. I'm proud to say at Capital Music Group that 50% of our senior management team is women. I love that. So... I'm not sure that everyone listening knows what it means to be a C-suite executive. Can you explain it? You know, I don't even know if I can explain it because quite frankly, I think it means something different for everyone. But it essentially means that you are on the team that is running the company. Like responsible for the success of the company, the big decisions. The big decisions, the success and failure of the company. And you give your team credit when things go well, and you take responsibility when things go poorly. Interesting. And who do you have to answer to? I answer to the chairman and CEO of the company, Steve Barnett. Got it. So being COO means that you're in charge of the daily operations of the company. Can you give us examples of the kinds of things that you oversee? Yes, but I have to tell you that I do not believe that I'm a traditional COO. I think COOs at companies can mean a variety of different things. And for me, because I come from a background where I work directly with artists, it's a little different than a COO at most companies. So what I do is, well, I do help run the company and ensure that we're organized correctly and that our employees are happy. A lot of my job also entails ensuring that we are signing the artists that we want to sign. I'm involved in all competitive signings. And when an artist or a manager are unhappy, I'm usually the one they deal with. I sometimes like to call myself the cleaner. And um And I deal with universal corporate on corporate issues. Got it. So you're dealing a lot on the creative side as well. Yes. Beautiful. I'm sure that's which excites me. Right. The most fun part of your job, of course. Okay. So before we get into more detail about your job, definitely want to hear how you got to where you are because that's what so many people listening are looking to learn from you. Tell us where you originally from. I am from the booming metropolis of Altoona, Pennsylvania. I was originally born in Pittsburgh, um, but. My dad died when I was three years old, and my mom, uh, about six or seven years later, met a guy who lived in Altoona, and she dragged me kicking and screaming to Altoona. And do you have any memories of your father? I don't really know if I have memories or I've created memories based on stories and pictures that I've seen. I'm not really sure. And you wrote in your pre-interview that 
um, the way he died was questionable. It was a questionable death. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, my dad was a criminal defense attorney, and he represented a um, lot of men that were in the Pittsburgh Mafia. And although he left a suicide letter, uh, we are not sure whether or not he actually committed suicide or he was murdered. Wow. And that's something that you just will never know the answer to. I will really, truly never know. That's crazy. Tell us, what what effect did did it have on your life? I think I I looked at my mom, who at that point, um, when I was three, my mom was no longer working. She was a, a speech and language pathologist before I was born and stopped working when I was born. And I think that she, I saw her scramble to try and support us and figure out what she was going to do while balancing being a mom. And she figured it out. And I never was wanting as a child. And what that made me realize at an incredibly young age and far younger than anyone should have to realize this was that I had to take care of myself and that I should never rely on anyone. Especially a man. Correct. So your mom remarried, um, and your stepfather had four kids, and so you had to blend. Three kids. Fa- oh, three kids. So yeah. there was four of you total. Yes. And so you had to blend families. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Was Didn't a get nightmare. along with the kids. Not at all, or the or the stepfather. So that was tough. That was tough, and thankfully that marriage didn't last very long. And I remember when my mother told me she was marrying him, uh, she came to visit me. I was at summer camp and brought him and told me she was marrying him. And I said to her, this won't work. You'll get a divorce. Isn't that funny how kids know they just have an intuition? Also, in your pre-interview, um, you said that music really helped you kind of get through that time. Why do you think music had such a profound impact uh, during that, that period? I just think that there were a lot of tough times in my life, despite the fact that I, through it all, I had an incredible mom. And not everyone can say that they have one parent that's incredible. So I'm lucky for that. But my mother loved music, and through that, she um, built within me a love for music. And it just really is such a freeing place. And I always knew that I could turn on some music and feel like I was somewhere else. And who were some of your biggest musical influences around that time? I remember my mom listening to the Eagles and the Bee Gees and Simon and Garfunkel and and Prince and Stevie Wonder, and, and, and I loved it all. All right, so let's skip ahead to high school. What kind of student were you? I was a serious student. I figured that that everything was stacked against me because I was coming from an incredibly small town. I was at a public high school. There was a there were 619 people in my class and I knew I had to stand out. So I um so academics were a priority for you. Academics were a priority as was my social life. And you were also the salutatorian of your school. Yes, yes. So that's a nice accomplishment, especially with a large class like that. I was just excited that I was able to give a speech to the class. I think that's all I really cared about. Okay, so after high school, where did you go? After high school, I oddly, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go, but I knew that um, I wanted to go somewhere that I probably would never live long term, and I wanted to experience an area of the country that 
was different from where I was. So I had a close friend of mine who was a soccer player who loved the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he told me I should look there because I could get in. And we went one weekend and I loved it. And that's how I ended up there. I love how sometimes a random person comes in your life and suggests something and like everything just shifts. Exactly. It makes no sense. It makes no like, sense. Great, just great. Come, it's let's a go on a road trip. Let's go check it yeah, out. Exactly. And then all of a sudden you're there and your whole life yeah. just kind of goes on a path. At this point, when you started um, college, did you know that you wanted to go to law school after? I did. And is that because of um, that, that because of your dad? You know, I think that a big part of it, probably subconsciously, was about my dad. I don't think I knew that, but it certainly was subconsciously. And the other part of it was I knew as a lawyer, you could always make money. Of course. So after undergrad, you went to law school. Where'd you go? Straight to law school. I went to um, Fordham Law School in New York City, and I that started my love affair with New York City. It's still surprising to me this to this day that I don't live there any longer. You like New York better than L.A.? I do, but I think at this stage of my life, um, I like my lifestyle better in L.A. New York's hectic. Yeah. It's crazy, it especially with a kid. Yeah. How old is your son? He's four and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah that's that's and a tough. a ball of energy, and I can't imagine bringing him up in New York. So after your first year in law school, you took a job working with the New York County District Attorney, and you quickly became dissatisfied with the lack of justice in the criminal justice system. So it seems like you were going down a path that was similar to your dad, or there was some interest there. Was there a specific incident that turned you off, or was it just the everything that happened there? There were a number of incidents, but um, the one that stands out the most to me is that um, we were allowed to sit in something that was called intake. And what that meant was you would be in a um, room at the kind of on around the courthouse in New York City, and they would bring potential suspects in in the middle of the night. And I was sitting in the room and there was a young um, boy that was brought in. He was probably 14 or 15 years old on a potential robbery charge. And the DAs are there and they're questioning the boy and he was read his rights in a very half-assed manner and you could tell that intellectually he was a little challenged and they were pushing him to implicate himself and it, it kind of made me sick and they walked out of the room at one point and there were cameras everywhere and I looked at him and I went shut up <laughs> wow <laughs> and I was like, you have a right to an attorney. <laughs> and um, and I just thought to myself, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And I understand that I was idealistic, but I just knew that I couldn't be part of a system like that. And I ultimately got in trouble because they saw me on camera. But um, I still felt good with my decision yeah, to tell him like, feels to like you did keep the right his thing. mouth shut. So um, so you had a major shift then, and you decided that you wanted to start a career in music. How did you kind of make the connection from, from criminal justice to that? You know, I think, and again, I've never really thought about it, but I think subconsciously I was maybe just trying to live out the remainder of what should have been my father's life. And when I realized that that wasn't going to make me happy, I just quickly thought to myself, what does make me happy? And the first thing that popped to my mind was music. Um, but I also knew that that was a business, um, just like any business in entertainment, where you had to have connections, and I had none, and I didn't know anyone. So I had no idea how I was going to get there, but ultimately I knew I would. 
And when you made the decision that you wanted to have a career in music, like what was the end goal? What did you want to be? Or, or I wanted do? to run a record company. Beautiful. You're almost, almost at the very, very top. Almost. almost. Still have a lot of time to go. <laughs> so from there, then you went and worked at Simpson Thatcher Bartlett for the summer, and then you joined the law firm as an M&A attorney. Can you explain what M&A is? Sure. So I knew that I was going to be graduating with a substantial amount of law school debt, and I also know, knew I didn't know anyone in music. So somehow I talked my way into a few meetings with high-ranking um, attorneys in the music business that were on the artist side and a few general counsels. of One was of MTV. And I asked them if they would give me a job. And they told me that there weren't jobs available, but if they were to give me a job, they would be incredibly low-paying. So there was no way I was going to be able to pay my loans off. And I asked them, well... I can't take this job, even if you had it, because I can't afford it. What should I do? And they said, you need to get a job at the best possible law firm that you can get a job and be a mergers and acquisitions attorney, because that will teach you how to be a lawyer and how to understand business. So I was lucky enough through hard work to get a job at Simpson Thatcher, which is one of the top five firms in the world. And yeah, it was, and I knew it wasn't going to be for the long term, but I knew that it was something that I needed to do to get where I wanted to go. And had nothing to do with music at that nothing. point. But you still knew that eventually you wanted to move towards that. But I knew I had to pay off my loans first. Very smart. I like the way you think. <laughs> or so, crazy. It depends on how you think about it. I think it's awesome. <laughs> so you worked there for about four years. You paid off your loans, which I'm sure were pretty hefty. It must have been an incredible feeling to write that last check. It was, and, and it's so funny now because when people ask me whether or not it's important to pay off your loans in a quick manner before you take jobs that maybe you're more passionate about that aren't as financially lucrative, I'm not sure that I would give myself the advice that to do the same thing again. But for me, it was very emotional. However, educational money, the interest rates are really low. So right. there really is not an incentive to pay them off quickly. But for me, it was an emotional barrier more than anything. Understood. So I understand after about a year, you reached a bit of a snag at your first annual review. Can you tell us what happened? I did. Um, so at my first annual review, I was sitting there with a highly lauded partner at the firm. And he... Um, looked at me and for some reason anyone that knows me knows that I only wear black but for some reason that day I was wearing a white blouse don't know why and he took the opportunity to throw a bottle of water on my shirt yeah I know crazy right and then um looked like at me opened it and splashed yes. it on you yeah opened it splashed it on me just threw it and then said all right now we can start your review and in my head I thought there's a multitude of things I can do, but I will show him. So I just crossed my arms over my breasts and I said, let's go. He gave me my review, which incidentally was glowing. My jaw is dropped right now. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Crazy. Wow. Okay, keep going. Um, which was glowing, the review. And then I walked out and I thought to myself, self, you're very ambitious you don't want to alienate people at this firm, but you should take your power. So at um, firms like that, there is always someone who is the assigning partner who decides what deals you work on. So I called that person who happened to be a woman, and I never told her of the incident, but I said, you don't need to know why, but from now on, 
I am going to decide which partners I will work with at the firm. Wow. So you decided not to report him. Correct. Do you regret that decision now with everything that's happening with the Me Too movement and people kind of really stepping up and finding their voice? Yeah, I think it was a little weak of me in um, in retrospect, but it was the best decision for me at the time and the only thing that I felt capable of making because I knew that at that time I had a ton of debt and that I needed to keep this job and... I was hopeful that that someone else would speak out, and I, that's incredibly weak. And I don't see. I don't but, look at it that way. I mean, I know some people listening might not agree with me. I think the decision is, you know, fully yours. And if you feel like you need to step up, you step up and speak. And sometimes the decision not to is okay too. It's whatever feels right for you. Because speaking up has a whole load of consequences that come with it as well that people have to deal with and stress and issues. And it's a very personal decision how you deal with it. You're right. And it was certainly a different time. Um, but I also knew that. Um, there was a history of a multitude of men who were what firms call rainmakers that were misogynists, that if they did something wrong, it would just be glossed over with money. And I'm sure that probably would have too, because as you said, it was a very different time. Okay, so now you um, pay off your loans. You're about to make a big shift. You're about to move to the music business. So um, you decide that you want to go to Sony's music legal department. Is that correct? Yes. And the only reason that I wanted to go there, and it sounds like I'm a planner because I am, is because I had done my research and realized that in order to achieve my ultimate goal, which was to run a record label, I needed to go to somewhere that respected my skills and stay a lawyer and somewhere that had a history of having lawyers go on to then run record companies. And the most storied name that anyone would identify with, it isn't even necessarily in the music business, is Clive Davis. And Clive Davis started in the Sony Music Legal Department. Oh, interesting. So you kind of wanted to follow down his path. Correct. That makes a lot of sense. So I understand that you went through seven rounds of interviews there. Correct. And I thought, that is ridiculous. I can't even believe it. I'm coming from one of the best firms in the world, and I have to go through seven rounds of interviews to be a lowly lawyer at Sony Sony Music. But I did. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they put you through seven rounds? I think it was highly competitive. Everyone wanted to work in the music industry, and it was about when the music industry was about to go precipitously downhill, but I still wanted to work in it. And I think they knew that they had the pick of the litter, so they tortured us. And I'm sure there was a lot of men that were vying for the job as well. Yes. But you got it. Somehow I did. Awesome. So you mentioned that you weren't very happy there. Tell us why. I think part of it was that I had um, unrealistic expectations of what it would be to work in the music industry and to be a lawyer in the music industry. And... um, I had gone from working at a law firm, working on multi-billion dollar mergers and acquisitions to going to a record company, working on deals that were in the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And people were looking over my shoulder at every I I dotted and T I crossed. You were being micromanaged. Correct. And I do not like to be micromanaged and I don't like to be told what to do. And it just wasn't for me. And I also felt that when I was negotiating deals on behalf of the record company um, and I was dealing with the artist attorneys, I felt like that my 
allegiances were more aligned with the artist. So I felt like that I didn't really fit in and that I should probably go to the artist side. Got it. And was that in New York or in LA? That was in New York. That I was, was in Sony York. in New York. Got it. So then you then decided to move to Los Angeles with a guy or for a guy? For a guy. But I got a job first. I didn't just move for the guy. The guy was in LA. Got it. But I ensured that I got a job in LA before I moved. And you were looking for a change anyway. So I it was. seemed like a good I move. I was. So I called all of the um, partners in law firms that I had negotiated against that represented artists. And I knew I should be an artist attorney. So I knew that was the next logical step for me. Beautiful. So where was your first job in Los Angeles? My first job in Los Angeles was at a for an artist, primarily artist firm called King Holmes Paterno and Berliner. And how long were you there? Um, I think I was at there approximately nine years. And um, my first interview there when they were deciding whether or not to hire me, that firm had a history of only hiring people to service partners, existing business. I told them that I would service their clients for one year. And after that, I would have all my own clients and I would not be servicing their clients I any longer. I love your confidence. They yes. were probably like, sure, little girl. Um, great. I don't know who she thinks she is. But um, they hired me, I think, with the expectation that I had no idea what I was talking about. Beautiful. And so you hit another snag with one of your first artists there. Is that correct? Through a friendship that I had developed, one of my first clients was MIA, and that was within the first couple months of me working there. So I started to develop my own client base. And then a client that I got probably a couple months after that, who I had developed a, a very close relationship with, uh, and I had represented him for a few years, one day we got into a debate because he had no manager at the time. So I was acting as his lawyer and pseudo manager. And we got into a very spirited debate and he fired me and I was devastated. On the spot. On the spot. You didn't On expect- the phone. It was on the phone. But yes, I didn't expect it. I thought, you know, we can get into these debates. I'm his lawyer. He doesn't have a manager right now. I need to tell him if I think he's about to do something that is detrimental to his career. It did not go well. It didn't go well. No. What'd you learn from that experience? Well, I learned that I shouldn't personalize everything, which is still, especially business, but that's still a constant struggle for me. And I also learned that really, as much as I um, cared about a client or a business relationship, that that's exactly what it was, a business relationship. And at the end of the day, these people are not my friends. Agreed. I want to uh, touch on what you just said, how important it is not to kind of personalize business, because I think it's something that I struggle with every day as well. Um, You know, I have a lot of employees, a lot that I get really close to. You get emotionally invested. Sometimes things change. You have to let someone go because the business shifts. Explain why, from your perspective, it's so important not to do that. I mean, it's important at any level, but especially in a managerial um, C-suite level, there are very hard decisions you have to make on a daily basis. And I've been in positions like you before where I've had to terminate the employment of someone that I... Love. Yeah. Adore. that That I adore. And it's incredibly hard. And you cannot, when you're delivering that message, make it about you. It's about them. And it's about their life. And I struggle with it. I'm not very good at it. But um, despite the fact that you feel personally strongly about this individual and you feel like you've developed a relationship, 
you, the first thing you have to do is if you're calling them to your office to terminate their employment, you have to tell them right away because you don't want them to anticipate anything. Agreed. All right. So you worked at King Homes in Paterno for nine years and then became a partner there. Yes. I don't, you know, and I don't even know what, what year I became a partner, but ultimately I became a partner there. And I think it was just because they couldn't deny the level of clients that I had any longer. Tell us some of the people you had the pleasure to work with. In my opinion, I've worked with some of the best of the best artists and my clients were um, at the forefront of creativity and culture. And um, I, I had said my first client was MIA, but I also represented Frank Ocean, Pharrell, Odd Future, uh, Marilyn Manson, Avicii, Swedish House Mafia, Slipknot, Damian Marley. I don't know who else I'm missing, but it was just a pretty wow. Kesha. Wow. Like a very incredible group of artists who knew exactly who they were and didn't want anyone to get in their way. And I found I felt like it was my primary objective to protect their creative vision. All right, so we're going to jump ahead. One day you got a life-changing call. Who called you and what did they say? So before Steve Barnett called me, he had a mole call me to find out whether or not I would be interested in maybe leaving the practice of law and going to run a company. And as that was my lifelong ambition, the answer was a yes. What did the mole say? Like, I'm a recruiter? No, he was somebody else in the music business. He was a manager in the music business. Okay. um, That I knew very well and that um, my current boss knew very well. And I think my current boss didn't want to call me if it was going to be a firm no. And um, I said I was interested. And then the phone rang minutes later. And Steve Barnett, who was then, I believe his title was COO of Columbia Records. And Columbia was by far the most successful label. And right. I know so it was a big deal that he was a big deal. You. That Did you know him? I knew him. We, okay. met, we met a few times, but spent time together when I um, was negotiating a deal for a collective called Odd Future. Tell us, what was it like to get that call? What did it feel like to be validated that way? It felt like I'd been seen. Um, It felt like that everything that I had worked for my whole life and that I honestly believed maybe might never come to fruition was actually could be realized. I love that you didn't have to seek it. Like it came to you. That's so powerful. Yeah, so I incredible. give him I give him a lot of credit that he had um, the vision to believe that I could do something like this. Awesome. Well, we all need a Steve in our life. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So after four months of negotiating, after you got this phone call, um, you were named the EVP of Capital Records in 2013. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, people would say after you get this phone call, why didn't you just automatically say yes? It was the job that you had always dreamed of, and I, you know, the reality is at that time, I adored my clients. I was doing incredibly well as a partner in a law firm, and I knew that this was going to be a tremendous opportunity for me, but also it was scary. It was something that I'd never done before. I'd only been a lawyer in my professional life, and I also knew that I was going to be working incredibly closely with the chairman and CEO, Steve Barnett, and that we needed to really know each other well, and like each other. So it wasn't just four months of negotiating over my deal. It was really four months of getting to know Steve and Steve getting to know me 
and ensuring that we would really complement each other and that we really liked and respected each other. That was very important. I love that you took your time doing that. That's awesome. Anyone that knows Steve knows this annoyed the shit out of him because he is, I'm impatient. He's next level impatient. But I think in the end, he probably appreciated it, though he might not admit it. Was there any backlash from anybody else that you took this job? Well, some of my clients weren't happy, but um, I, I think that at the time when Steve had discussed the job with me, he told me I would be his right hand and that I would be running the company. So I wanted the COO title from the time that I was going over there. But I give Steve credit again for giving me the right advice and saying, Michelle, you've never done this before. You're coming in to a company that's had people that's that have worked in the record company side for far for a long time. They are going to be intimidated by you. They're not going to be happy you're getting this job. I think you should come in. And for the first year and a half, two years, you should come in as executive vice president, earn so, everyone's so respect. They were, so they were grooming you. Yeah. Oh, I love and he that. said, you should earn everyone's respect. And I promise you, I will give you the title you deserve in two years. And he kept his word. Beautiful. And I think his advice was right, because I really think that had I gone in with that title... On day one, I would have very much had a problem. That's such a smart strategy. It really is smart that he did that, like earning people's respect so that once you got the title, people just were totally good with it. And I, and I had already been doing the job. So it was kind of people right, were like, oh, wasn't oh, that yeah. always Makes your title? Totally. Makes sense. So. so there must have been a really steep learning curve. There was. It was. I remember in the first four months, I was traveling all of the time because I went to meet our international partners in London and Paris and Germany and spent a lot of time in New York and in Nashville. And so while I was traveling, getting to know everyone at the company and getting to know our artists, I was in a fairly new relationship that went south at that time. Okay. Because I don't think I said, but like the guy I moved to LA for, that obviously went bad. It went bad. Yeah. You didn't get married. It was married. a long time ago. You didn't no. get engaged. Did you, were you we engaged? We got engaged and that but ended. Not but I ended up staying in LA. Was he in the music biz? He was not. All right. So um, you also discussed in your pre-interview the importance of, um, you know, having female friends during this time and how they've made such a, you know, a difference in your life. Tell us kind of um, the role that women played during this like giant transition in your life. My group of female friends are my everything. We talk about virtually everything with um, unabashed, honest opinions on what the other is doing and to push each other when we need push, especially if you're an ambitious woman who's hard on yourself, which most of us are. Um, There are times when self-doubt always creeps in and you just need one of your friends that you believe has their shit together more than you to give you that push that you need at that time. Yeah, It's amazing what um, a little confidence someone puts in you can do. It propels you forward. We all need that. We do. It's important to have women like that in your life or men too. Yeah. All right. So I understand that at the age of 40, you had a little bit of a surprise come your way. You got pregnant. Apparently, I don't understand how that works. (laughs) Um, So this was not planned? No, it was not planned. And in fact, um, 
you know, I started dating a longtime friend and former client of mine who um, I never dated when he was my client, side note. And I just didn't think I could get pregnant. I figured if I wanted to get pregnant, I was really going to have to try. And I know how hard some of my friends try and have multiple rounds of IVF. And somehow I got pregnant at the age of 39 or 40. And did you know you were pregnant right away, or how did that come about? You really want to know the story? I do. I, I really want it's to know the story. It's kind of embarrassing, but um, my um, fiancé and the father of my child called me. He um, was in a band at the time for a long time, like so 25 years. So he's a musician? Years. He's a musician, yes. Hey, hey, what hey. I said I would never do. Okay. And he was on the road. He was in Europe, and he had told me that he had a dream that I was pregnant with our little boy. And I was like, you are crazy. What are you talking about? He's like, I had a dream. I don't know. I'm telling you, you should go take a pregnancy test. And he's like, you're not really that in touch with your body. So I recommend <laughs> you take a pregnancy test. Okay. It's like, you don't pay attention to anything. And I took eight pregnancy tests. And I was, in fact, pregnant. Wow. You took eight? Oh, I took eight. Yeah, because you was, didn't believe the first no, seven? No. Because I thought something was wrong. I didn't. I was... I just didn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And it's a I, surreal feeling yeah, to look at that pregnancy test. It's it really surreal. It is, especially when you're not expecting it. Not expecting it and eight months into the job that you've been dying to have for oh, a long boy. time and scared to death of what that means for your career when you've been career focused your whole life. Were you scared to tell your boss? I was. How'd that go? But he has four children, okay. and he's incredibly um, family-oriented and close with his wife, you know. I was nervous to tell him, and I walked in when I was, I think, three months. I waited till that date since I was an older pregnant woman. Mm -hmm. And I told him, and he, I think he might have cried from happiness and oh. hugged me and said that this is what he wanted for my life. Oh. He didn't want me to just be solely focused on my career. Ugh, we love Steve. Yeah. He's a good guy. He's a good, He's guy. A good guy. Do you feel that um, after the birth of your son, did you feel like things kind of slowed you down? Do you feel like it changed your focus? How did having a child that late in your career affect your world? Yeah, it did slow me down a little bit. I, I would say for my professional career, since I've been in the music industry, I um, felt like, like any business, the music industry is built upon relationships. And I had a history of going out four to five nights a week and ensuring that I knew everyone that I was... Do you still do that? I probably go out three to four nights a week now, but I would say for the first two years of my son's life... It might have been twice a week. And That's a lot in my book. <laughs> Even two nights a week. Wow. I don't, I'm a homebody. Right. But, it's, the, but it's part low. of your job. You've but, got to, I mean, yeah, it's all about it's your relationships. Yeah, it's part of my job. And it's incredibly social. And there are also lots of shows. But for two years, I dialed it back. And I was very nervous about what that would mean for me professionally. But I also felt like I had built up enough in my bank of relationships that I could dial it back for two years. And your fiancé is a musician still? Yes, he he's a musician. He was in a band for 25 years, and um, now he produces and writes for other people. So you said something in your pre-interview that really came as a shock to me. Uh-oh. When I asked you about kind of your success, you actually wrote that you felt like you hadn't gotten there yet. And it kind of took me by surprise. Like To me, you're like, wow. Tell us why you feel that way. I have high expectations of myself, and I am 
and I think this is a word that a lot of women are afraid to use, I am incredibly ambitious. I don't feel like there's a ceiling to what I can or will accomplish, and I just don't think I'm there yet. I am proud of what I've been able to accomplish. I don't believe that I would consider myself successful yet. I think it's a journey, and I'm constantly on that journey, and success means different things to different people, but success also means to me ensuring that I am always doing my job with purpose and integrity. And um, I think there I'm, I'm on point, but I think I have more to accomplish. So you feel like you're constantly setting new goals for yourself? Definitely. So do you ever hope to be the CEO one day? I certainly do. Well, I, have no, I, certainly I have no doubt that you'll be there. So I can't wait to hear about that part of your journey. Well, thank you. I hope you're right. Okay. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit okay. because I think this part of your story is really important. Um, tell us a little bit about your involvement with She is the Music. Um, she is the Music is a nonprofit organization that increases the number of women working in music. So not only musicians, songwriters, but also engineers, producers, and other industry professionals. Is that correct? That is correct. Awesome. So tell us about your involvement there. So some of my closest friends uh, started She is the Music, and it's obviously an ambitious and important initiative. The number of women in those roles across all layers of the music industry is atrocious, and it's important that all of us do everything we can to ensure that women have a voice and are considered in every aspect of the industry. And obviously, you've been in the business for a while, so you've really seen the transition from physical music products to online streaming. How has that impacted your personal career? I don't know that it's impacted my personal career, but what I can say is because I've been in different roles during different iterations of where and how music is being sold, that it's a more exciting time now than it ever was because streaming requires that every single artist plan is different from the next. There's no one size fits all model and every marketing plan is different. And that just makes it more fun. And more exciting because everybody has to reinvent themselves exactly. and push boundaries. Exactly. All right. So to so many people who are listening, um, you seem to have a dream job. But if you were to switch careers, what would you be doing? I mean, there are a lot of things that I would be doing if I were to switch careers. But it it depended if money was an object or not an object, quite frankly. Your passion. Okay. If money wasn't an object. If you won the lottery. If I won the, well, if I won the lottery, I would probably open a shelter for battered women. Nice. I know that sounds, you're like, people are like, oh, is she bullshitting us? No, that's the reality. So what is one piece of advice that you would give your past self or younger people listening today? Don't be so hard on yourself. Let go. Have more fun. Never deviate from who you are. I agree with that one. So is there anything else you'd like to elaborate on um, that you'd like to discuss on the in the podcast in greater detail or anything else you think people can really kind of learn from? I think it's an incredible disservice to women and men, but there, there are different expectations on men in society about having it all. And the reality is you cannot have it all at the highest level at all times. You can have different gradations of it all, but there is no way to be a great mother, a great employee, a great boss, a great daughter, a great friend, on and on and on, all at the same time. There just isn't. It's, there's not enough time in the day. 
there isn't enough emotional capacity or intellectual capacity. And the reality is you're just constantly having to reprioritize things on a minute-by-minute, day-by-day basis. And that's the reality. Right. You know, one question I was curious about, tell us a bit about how you would describe your leadership style. I would say that I have a collaborative leadership style. Uh, I'm certainly not a dictatorial leader. I always want everyone to feel like we're members of a team, but no matter what, I'm decisive. People underestimate how important that is. You need and there's nothing more annoying nothing than indecisiveness. More annoying. Nothing. Nothing. More. I agree. If somebody's indecisive, they're practically dead to me. It's, even if you make the wrong decision, just make a damn I agree. decision, right? We all make mistakes. Right. And then just fix yeah. it. Just get some balls and make a decision. There you go. I love that is really good advice. <laughs> um, how does somebody on your team impress you? People impress me by thinking outside the box, not being afraid to speak up, and never saying no. Okay. So I asked you um, what your actionable advice for those listening, and um, you had so much, so I picked my favorites. Um, a lot of really good I'm not things. lacking in advice. No, it's great. I love it. And I think you touched on this, but you talk about how relationships make all the difference. Tell us why. Business, work, it's hard. It's just not easy. It's not easy. And you really need people rooting for you. And times will be good and times will be bad, and no one's going to put out a helping hand for you in a bad time if you don't have strong relationships and you're not truly a good human being. Agreed. You also said that it's important to never say, that's not my job. Everything is a learning experience. Expand on that. I get a really bad taste in my mouth when I hear overhear someone say, that's not my job, because that's something that I have never done. Sometimes I'll say it in jest. It's just important to roll up your sleeves no matter what level you are in a company. I'm, even today, when I when someone asks me to do something and I laugh to myself, I can't believe I'm still doing this, when people are like, oh, we need to send a gift to this particular artist, Michelle, could you take care of it? I'm like, sure. I mean, it seems kind of crazy that you're, that you're paying me to do this, but yes, of, of course I'll take care of it. And I think that the reality is people remember that. Yeah, it's it's just important. You you never know and you never know what relationship you're going to make by doing something that you might deem beneath you. The reality is there's always something that you can learn. My favorite people at my company are the people at the top that do the things way below them. Yeah. That's my favorite quality in someone. You also say that um, know you're only as strong as your weakest band member. Yeah. Team member, band member, because I'm in the music industry, of course I say band member. Everyone needs to uplift each other. And um, if you feel like someone's struggling, help them because they will just bring all of you down. All right. Well, I think you have answered all of my questions. I have learned an incredible amount from you. So thank you for being here today. This was actually fun and I was dreading it because I'm always like, what is going to come out of my mouth? Everyone always says that they're dreading it. And then after they did it, they're like, that was totally fun. Okay. So before we go, um, I'm going to bring Tyson back on. She's very eager to ask you a few questions and obviously has a big future ahead of her. So I'm just going to hand it over to you, Tyson. Hi. Hi, Tyson. (laughs) So... What first grabs your attention when you discover a new artist? Is it a unique look, a sound, an attitude, a story, or just all of it? I'm going to take the cop-out answer and say it's all of it because it really is. Um, You know, ultimately, because I work at a record company, it's about the songs, but the vision, uh, the look, 
all of it is inextricably intertwined and it's so important. What advice would you give to a young female artist trying to stand out in a lane that is very saturated right now? Well, I would give the same advice to a young female artist that I would give to anyone, which is always be authentically you. Don't deviate from who you are because fans are too smart these days and they'll know if you're trying to be someone else. And to create a clear creative vision for yourself and to play as much live as you possibly can. Mm, That's awesome. I know a lot of managers and artists themselves feel these days that you need to create a buzz and a social media presence before talking to a major label. What's your opinion on that? The social media following. I know, I know. Well, I mean, this question comes up with everyone. We do look at that stuff. Of course, of course. um, Admittedly, I think that we sign artists for all different reasons. And sometimes we sign artists, and it's less likely today than it was in the past, on pure gut. Mm. pure gut and pure love of the music um there was an artist that we met with last week nothing on social media nothing on any streaming but we heard the music and it was transformative and different than anything out there and we had to sign him that's so encouraging and and we loved it there's nothing out there so it's starting from ground zero but that that's rare and, and it doesn't happen that often so there'll be less compromise you have to make in your future if you get yourself that far on your own got it in order to break an artist first it always starts with the music i mean that's why we all do what we do that's why i do what i do and it starts with the you know the music and the songs and an artist that has a clear artistic vision but then if we really want and they really want to be a worldwide success and have domination worldwide Mm -hmm. it takes a team of incredibly skilled people and I feel incredibly lucky that Capital Music Group has what I believe to be the best team in the business and every single person there sleeps, eats, and breathes what they do. They love music to their core and none of them could imagine themselves working in a different business and I think that that's what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Music makes the world go round, definitely. I want to thank you both for being here. Thank you again, Michelle, for being such an inspiration. Tyson, we're excited to see what you do with your career. And you're going to kill it. You're going to kill it. (laughs) Awesome. And I think that's a wrap.